Psalm 139. Let's read together. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. Verse 3. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you, co- for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for just how it can nourish our soul, Lord. And this psalm, Lord, of 139, just such a special psalm to many of us, Lord. Thank you for having David write it. And let it nourish us, Lord. Let us grow thereby by the reading of it and the study of it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, many Bible scholars consider Psalm 139 that we just read to be the most excellent of the Psalms, and I must say that I agree. Over my 20-plus years as a Christian, I've probably read this Psalm dozens of times, and I'm sure many of you have as well. And if you haven't, Certainly, as we just read that, you probably recognized some of those verses in that psalm, maybe such as, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, or uh, Lord, search me and know me. Um, so many of those psalms are, or passages are familiar to us. And as is custom with me anyway, when Rob is gone and he asked me to preach, I'll go to one of the verses in the Bible or a passage that's one of my favorites one that I I know from memory, and so today is no different. I've chosen Psalm 139, and I hope that we all all are blessed uh, by it. 
This chapter shows David's heart as he meditates upon the omniscience of God. That may be a big word for some of us. Maybe we don't know what that word means. Omniscience, it's two parts of one word. It's, there's omni and there's science. And omni is really a Latin derivative word of omnis, and that means all. Simply means all. And science, many of you know, means to know. So omniscience means to know all. And that very much describes our Lord, doesn't it? He knows, knows all things. And there's other words that begin with that word, uh, with that prefix of omni. There's omnipotent, which means all-powerful. There's uh, omnipresent, which means to be in all places at all times. So those obviously describe our Lord as well. And we do see the omnipresence of God in this psalm as well. God is all-knowing, and this psalm teaches us that. And as we go through the psalm together, we're going to look at it in three different parts. The first part will be that we'll see the truth of God's omniscience is laid down in verses 1 through 6. And in part 2, the evidence of God's omniscience is confirmed by David in verses 7 through 16. And in part 3, David draws conclusions from this doctrine of omniscience in verses 17 through 24. Okay, now David starts off this psalm by saying that the God that we worship and love has a perfect knowledge of us. And that all the motions and actions of our inward and our outward person are naked and open before him. In verse 1, he begins with an adoration to God. He says, oh, Lord. And he directs his praise and his adoration to God for the knowledge that he has. And he gives him glory for it. And verse 1 also says, you have searched me and known me. And he recognizes that God knows him fully and completely. And he applies this truth, this, this doctrine of God's omniscience to himself. Notice he doesn't say, um, Lord, you have searched all things and know all things. No, he makes it personal. And he says, you have searched me and you know me. David is saying that this is what is of concern to him, that God knows him. And that's what we want for ourselves, don't we? We want a God who knows us, who hears us, who understands us. And you know what? We have that. We have that in God. He knows all the particulars about our lives. He knows when you sit down. He knows when you stand up. He knows when you walk, when you talk, when you shout, when you laugh. When you gripe, when you cry, when you drive, how you merge onto the freeway. He knows your attitude towards those who merge onto the freeway. Yes, he even knows our thoughts afar off. He knows our thoughts long before we even think them, and he knows our thoughts long after we have even forgotten them. Think about this. Nothing is so quick and close to us as a thought in our mind. And it's a secret to anybody else. Nobody else knows it. Our thoughts are very personal to us. And yet, God understands my thoughts far off. The Hebrew translate, uh, translates this way, you understand my thoughts in their origins. The idea here is before I even think them, you know them, Lord, you know the processes by which my thoughts are formed. In Psalm 33, 
verses 14 and 15, it says, from the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. Isn't it amazing that he understands us from afar? From the heights of heaven, he sees into the hearts, into the depths of our hearts. Verse 3 says, you comprehend my path and my lying down. The King James Version uh, word for comprehend is compassit, compassist. The Hebrew word there is zara, and it means to scatter or to winnow or to sift or to encompass. And the picture I get of this is God sort of encompassing and sifting through the path that I'm on. He sees every detail. He sees every angle of it. He sees so much more of it than I do. Paul the Apostle wrote in Acts 17, 28, he said, For in him we live, we move, and we have our being. Just the all-prevailing presence of God surrounding my life, that's God's omnipresence. He takes notice of every step that we take in this path of life. He notices every, every right step, and he knows every misstep. He is acquainted with our ways, which ways we walk. You know, God is intimately aware of where we walk, who we walk with, and the direction that we are going. David says, there is not a word on my tongue but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. There is not one word on my tongue that God doesn't know and understand everything about it. He knows the thought that generated that word and what motive I had to speak that word. That's why it's so important for Paul when he wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10.5 that we are to cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We need to submit our thought life to the Holy Spirit of God that indwells in us and bring them captive to the obedience of Jesus. Why is that important? Because what do our thoughts become? Our thoughts become words. Luke 6.45 says, For out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. What comes out of your mouth? Is it praise? Is it encouragement? Is it joy? Is it gentle correction? Or is it complaining? Is it griping? Is it bemoaning? Is it worry? God knows what is coming out of our mouths. And he knows the thoughts and the motives behind those thoughts. God knows me so completely. But behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Verse 5 says, you have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. I can look back in my life and see the hand of God on it. And I can look forward and see that God is blazing the trail before me, though I may not see completely what his plans are for me. And I can see that his hand is on me in the present, guiding me. You see, I'm surrounded by God. My past, my present, and my future is all wrapped up in God. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. And then the psalmist declares, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. 
It is high. I cannot attain it. Basically, he's saying, God, you have such knowledge of me that I don't even have of myself, nor can I have. I can't even take notice of my own thoughts or make a judgment of myself. You know, so many people can waste many years or even a half a lifetime looking to find themselves, to know themselves better. If that's you, let me gently tell you to save your time. Take it from someone who's been there. Take it from me who spent several years trying to find like, it's like hurting rabbits. You can't do it. <laughs> it's vanity. It's idol worship. It's a worship of yourself. Here's what you are outside of Christ. You are nothing. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the vine. You are the branch. The vine is the source of life and every good thing. The branch can do nothing without the vine. You want to know you? Well, Let's back up. The Bible tells that the heart of man is deceitful, above all things, and desperately wicked. We are sinners created, for du- created from dust and in need of a Savior. So stop the wandering. Stop the vain seeking for some sort of nirvana where you are now in touch with yourself. You want to know you? Go to the one true God who knows the number of hairs on your head. Find yourself in him. Find life in him. Find enjoyment in him. Get your eyes off yourself and onto the one who knows you infinitely more than you will ever know yourself this side of heaven. Find yourself in Jesus. He desires to be with you and you with him. Verse 7 says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. We are now into the second stage of the psalm where David lays out the evidence for God's omniscience and shows the certainty that God perfectly knows him in all his ways. David knows that he is under God's watchful eye. That should be a comfort to us especially if we are walking in his ways. David knows that if God is omnipresent, certainly he is omniscient. If he is in all places at all times, certainly he knows all things. So David is acknowledging this and he's applying it to himself. And so he opens himself up to God. And he said, God, where can I go from your spirit? Not that he has a desire to leave God's spirit. He desires nothing more than to be near him. He's just making this case, saying basically, Lord, if I were dumb enough to want to go out of your sight, that I might shake off the wonderfulness of your presence and try to live my life independent from you, where would I go? So he brings uh, three of the most remote and distant places that he can think of and correctly assumes that he would meet God there. Firstly, he says in heaven. Now, of course, we know God's in heaven, right? Several times in the scriptures, the Bible tells us God is in heaven. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. All the saints are worshiping him forever and ever in heaven. We know God's there. Then he mentions hell. Now, the Hebrew word for hell there is sheol, which can mean a few things. I mean, three different things. One, it can mean the depths of the earth, the very center of it. 
So the idea here is if we were to dig a hole as deep as we can underground and think to hide ourselves there, we would be mistaken. And to make that in a practical situation, this time, if we think we can go to some downtown bar and escape God there, or if we can go to some dark place on the internet and escape God there, no, you can't. You cannot flee his presence. Sheol can also mean the state of the dead. When we are removed from the sight of the living, when we die and we're buried in the grave, it could mean that we, are, we can't even hide ourselves there, that God sees us there as well. And lastly, what it can mean, and this is what I think it means, may be understood to be the place for the damned, or what we commonly think of when we think of hell. He says, if I make my bed in hell, let's stop there. Sounds like a very uncomfortable place to make a bed, doesn't it? Yet thousands, if not millions, will make their bed there forever in the flames. I have a hard enough time making a bed and putting sheets on it, let alone with flames all around me. It's not a laughing matter, really. It's a very serious thing, and people are heading there. The Bible says, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many thereby go by it. Narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. So how is God in hell? He says, behold, you are there. It's God's power and his justice can be found there. God's wrath is in the fire which will burn in hell everlasting. I believe this is the manifestation of God's presence in hell, his perfect wrath, absence from his grace and his mercy, that is a picture of hell. You do not ever want to be without God's grace and his mercy. And thirdly, he brings up another remote and distant place, the remotest, remotest corners of the world. He says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Even if I should flee to the most distant in obscure islands in Indonesia, or Tristan da Cunha, located 1,700 miles up from South Africa. I just Googled it. I want to find out a distant island. Even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand will hold me, so that I can go no further. I cannot go out of your reach. The omniscience of God just fills the universe. There is no place that you can go and escape the presence of God. Verse 11 says, if I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day, the darkness and the light are both alike to you. In other words, with God, there is no darkness. The Bible says that God is light. There is no hiding in darkness. It makes no difference to God. He can see just as well at night as he can during the day. Turn the lights out and hide from God? No. It doesn't make any difference. God can see us. Light and darkness are the same to him. Now, maybe you can hide, from your, hide your sin from your brothers and your sisters or your friends or your parents, but you can never, ever hide from God. So David lays out the first evidence of God's omniscience, that no matter where we go, 
there you are. Wherever you go, God is there. And now in verse 13 through 16, he lays out a second piece of evidence, the work of God's hands. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed and in your book, they all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. So God is making the case that the one who framed the engine also knows the inner working parts of it. God made us. And therefore, no doubt, he knows us, right? He saw us when we were being formed. So how could he possibly be hidden? We be hidden from him now that we are formed. He says, you formed my inward parts. The master of my most secret innermost thoughts and intentions, the innermost recesses of my soul and my mind, he knows them and these parts, he knows them and he knows how these parts work. He says, you covered me in my mother's womb. God covered our soul when he made each one of us in secret. When he hid us from all the world as he made us, he did not intend to hide us from himself. We are precious to him. We are his workmanship. That, took, that he took care to intricately make. And in 1 Peter 2.4, Peter alludes to how God intended for our soul to magnify God when he says, to not let your adornment be merely outward, rather let, the, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Why is that precious in the sight of God? I believe it's because this was how he originally made the hidden person of the heart. Each one of us unique, but each one of us to reflect his beauty and his gentle and quiet spirit. And David gives the glory here. To God. He said, I will praise you. I will praise you, the author of my being. My parents were only instruments of it. The creation of my soul was done under God's divine instruction. Fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, when you consider our bodies and how God made them to be living temples of the Holy Spirit of the living God. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? The God of the universe wants to indwell in my body and in your body. It's really astonishing, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And in your spirit, which are God's, marvelous are your works. That's the simple reaction that we can have when we consider the wonderfulness of how we have been created, body, mind, and spirit. 
And that my soul knows very well, David says. David is saying that his soul is testifying who his creator is and how wonderful is his creation. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We can know that we know that we are formed by God. Thus, we have so much reason to praise him for our creation and to conclude, as David does in verse, in verse 16, that he who saw our substance when it was unformed now sees that it is fashioned. And in verse 17, we now enter into the third and the final part of the psalm where David draws conclusions regarding God's omniscience. And first of all, he says and acknowledges with wonder and thankfulness the care that God has given him all his days. He says, how precious are your thoughts towards me, O God. How great is the sum of them. You know God's thoughts towards you are precious and many, and they are also good thoughts. In Jeremiah 29, 11, God tells us, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. You know, the thought that, or the fact that God has thoughts towards me, that is precious. It's valuable to me. It's wonderful. And it is wonderful to David. That's why I think he ends it with an exclamation point. It is precious. And his thoughts towards us are numerous. How great is the sum of them. We cannot count how many of God's thoughts have been towards us, how many good turns he has done for us, and what innumerable amounts of mercies we have received from him. If we could count them, they would be more than the number than the sand. And yet everyone great and done with great care and love from our Heavenly Father. You ever sat on a beach and grabbed a handful of warm sand and just look at the grains of that sand and let them pour out and think about this verse? I've done it before. It's been a long time. I want to do it again this summer, just thinking about it. (laughs) How each one of these tiny grains of sand represents a thought that God has towards you. Such love. God's attributes are like that. They're infinite. And I think about um, this often when I was a brand new believer in Southern California, I was sitting on a cliff overlooking the beach. I was watching this family down there. They had a little girl, maybe three or four years old, playing in the surf as the waves would lap up. And she would, as little kids do, she'd try to run away from the wave. And every once in a while, that wave would catch her feet. And I could just faintly hear a shrill of enjoyment and excitement. The Lord spoke to me at that time, and he said, and my, eye, my gaze turned up towards the ocean, and I just saw this vast Pacific Ocean. And God said, my love is like that. It's greater than that. And you can get so much enjoyment of just a little wave. How much more does he have for us? And his thoughts are like that as well. 
more than the grains of the sand. Psalm 40, verse 5 says, Many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Then when he, then he says, when I awake, I am still with you. What's the first thing you think of when you get up in the morning? The day's agenda? Who you need to call? What you have to do? What you're going to eat? What messages you have on your phone? Shouldn't the first thing that we think of and talk to be God? After all, when, he, when we awake, he's there. And he's been thinking about you all night long. Shouldn't we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and trust him that he will give us the wisdom and time and strength to do all the things that he desires us to do? If you're not beginning your day that way, ask him to give you the desire to do that every day. And if you are doing that, praise the Lord. That's a good place to be. Keep that up. The best part of waking up is not Folgers in your cup. <laughs> I know, it's corny. Thank you for laughing. <laughs> Younger people are going, what's, what's that mean? <laughs> and in verse 19, David seems to take sort of a left-hand turn here. He writes about the, first writes about the wonderfulness of God's work, his knowledge, his omniscience, his omnipotence, and then he asked God to slay the wicked. That was my Pastor Rob interpretation. <laughs> slay the wicked. Whoa, where did that come from, David? His conclusion is that the fact that God knows all, that he is omniscient, will bring the certain judgment for sinners. Surely, if God knows my sitting down and my rising up, he knows the paths of sinners as well, right? All their wickedness is open before God. The light and the darkness are the same to God. His evil, he sees the evil deeds that are done in the darkness. So what does David have to say to them? Well, he defies them. He says, depart from me, you bloodthirsty men. Basically says, you shall not debauch me, for I will not admit your friendship nor have fellowship with you. What fellowship does lightness have with darkness? You cannot destroy me. I am under God's protection. And what is the reason that God should punish them? Verse 20 says, They speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. They are his enemies, and they declare their hatred by taking his name in vain. Those that take God's name in vain show themselves to be his enemies. David detests them. He detests these wicked people. He says, do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them, Lord, because I love you. And I hate to see such affronts and indignities against your holy and blessed name. I hate them, verse 22, with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Wow, that's pretty strong language, isn't it? Hate is a pretty strong word, and it's a very hot topic in our society today. We're not supposed to hate anything, are we? Especially any sin that I might be involved in. We're supposed to be tolerant of that, right? You try standing up for righteousness 
and speak out against sin, and you'll quickly be labeled a hater. I know it happened to me just this past week. Praise the Lord. <laughs> now, some of you are thinking, I know because it came across my mind as I was preparing this. Wait a minute, aren't we supposed to love our enemies? Yes, we are. And this is probably the safest place to settle on this issue of love your enemies, hate your enemies, because it's a command of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44, he said, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. Now, you've probably heard the phrase, I'm going to get this right because I messed it up for a service, love the sinner, hate the sin. I hope you know that's not a verse in the Bible. Though there is some truth to it, but it's not a verse in the Bible. People quote it as if it is. But I also think that righteous David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was correct when he said, Lord, I hate those who hate you. I hate those who rise up against you. I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Surely David didn't mean that. We're supposed to love everybody, aren't we? David was a heart-playing musician after God's own heart, after all. How could a man after God's own heart hate anybody? David was a man after God's own heart. And I think it's safe to say that David was inspired by God, that what David was inspired to write by God was condoned by God. David also wrote in Psalm 25, verses 5 and 6, I have hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord. In Psalm 31, 6, David said, I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. In Psalm 101, verse 3 says, David wrote, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. I think the best place to settle on this is to remember that we are in a battle and there are enemies of Christ. The enemies of Christ are our enemies and we hate them with perfect hatred and we love them and we pray for them. We follow the lead of our commander by the direction of the Holy Spirit to decide when we do which or if we do both same time. Ecclesiastes tells us that there is a time to love, and there's a time to hate. There's a time for peace, and there's a time for war. Then in verse 23, David turns his prayer back to a request for himself, and he says, search me, O God, and know my heart, and know my, anxiety, my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me because I know that you're going to destroy the wicked, Lord, and I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to be destroyed along with them. See if there's something in me, Lord, that is displeasing to you. The man or the woman who says, search me, O God, recognizes the need of the convicting power of God to correct them. And this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit's work is that of revealing to us those areas in our lives that are displeasing to him. So God asks, so David asks God, he pleads with him to search his heart. David doesn't know himself well enough to know his own wickedness. So he says, search me, oh God. It's a great question for us to ask the Lord frequently. Search me, Lord. Is there anything wicked in me? Lead me in the way everlasting. There's one thing I don't want to be deceived about. And that is my eternal destiny, where I am headed. That's a good question to ask. If you haven't asked that yourself before, do I know 100% that when I die, I would go to heaven or hell? Where Where am I headed? How many people are deceived concerning their eternal destiny because they're trusting in the word of some man on TV. They're trusting in the word of some religious leader, someone with a lot of charm, a lot of charisma, and a smooth tongue, and probably a Ferrari in the front driveway. And they, may, they are encouraging people to follow after them, engaging them in brainwashing techniques, making zombies out of their followers. It's sad. And how many people are blindly following them today, thinking that this is a path for eternal life? They're deceived to their eternal destiny. Lord, lead me in the way everlasting. I don't want to be fooled on this. I don't want any of you to be fooled by this. So what is the way everlasting? In a word, it's Jesus. It's believing on Jesus and the payment that he has made for your sin that gives us eternal life. John, in the book of John, tells us what eternal life is. John 17, 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you do promise and give a way for us to have everlasting life with you, Lord. Lord, I pray for those here that haven't made that decision to completely turn away from their sin and to follow you, Lord. I pray that that decision would be made today. Lord, you are so wonderful. You're so good. You have so many wonderful thoughts towards us. You are a father worthy of worship. Thank you so much for your infinite love, your infinite forgiveness, your infinite thoughts towards us. We praise you and we love you. In Jesus' name.